This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. This edition of Dreamland is audio only. It's audio only, but it's still very fascinating. You won't have heard this approach to Nazi occultism ever before. It's a very unusual show. Today on Dreamland, we have a new guest, Stephen Flowers. Dr. Flowers is an expert in some rather surprising areas. Or why would he be on Dreamland, right? Uh, the occult in national socialism is what we're going to be talking about today. The symbolic, scientific, and magical influences of the Sh Third Reich. We're also going to be talking a bit about his another book of his, The Occult Roots of Bolshevism. His site, his website is seekthemysteries.com. And you know, in this show, we're finally going to learn something real about this stuff because there's an awful lot of bunk out there, I have to tell you. And I've interviewed from time to time, not often, but from time to time, some authors who were very imaginative, let me put it this way. Now, we, of course, one of the great uh, money pits or money generators of the t late 20th century and the second half of the 20th century was the Nazis and what uh, Nazi... Uh, what it meant that that the Nazis had gained so much power. Now, we, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about. Was it, it, can it be dismissed as some sort of occult thing or not? Uh, Stephen has a doctorate in Germanic languages and medieval studies from the University of Texas at Austin, my old alma mater, so he must be brilliant. Um, or possibly, uh, like me, he may have, well, never mind. It's a wonderful party school as well as, well as being a wonderful school. Let me put it that way, and I love it. He studied the history of occultism and runology at the University of Göttingen in Germany. He's the author of more than 50 books, including Revival of the Runes. Uh, he lives in Texas near Smithville, sort of an old, not far from Bastrop, I don't think, or, and um, uh, now, let's just touch on, to begin, the Revival of the Runes. It's a very intriguing title. I have to admit that I have not, uh, I have not read it, but I'm curious, the modern rediscovery and reinvention of the Germanic runes. I know from the book I did just read, The Occult and National Socialism, that you know an awful lot about the runes. You tell us a little bit about their history to begin with, perhaps, and then we'll get into their modern application. Certainly. Uh, the, the, the runes, uh, specifically the Germanic word rune, means secret or mystery, uh, and it's applied by them in ancient times to the symbols that were used for writing the Germanic languages when they first were ever written by themselves. And uh, the alphabetic system that they developed is a strange one in the sense that most people who uh, inherited the alphabet from the Greeks, from the Romans, etc., just adapted it to their language, and and that was it. But the Germanic peoples actually completely reconfigured the system, uh, changing the look of each 
character, uh, putting them in a unique order and applying to each of the letters, if you will, each of the runes, a name, a symbolic name. And this is something that's quite unusual in the history of writing systems. We're familiar with it in the Hebrew alphabet, that each name of the letter has a name which has a meaning beyond just an indication of the sound. So this kind of practice among people indicates that there was a deep symbolic poetic meaning uh, for this system. And that is what uh, was the reference point for any time they were mentioned in the oldest literature we have relating to them, Old Norse poetry and things of that nature. The uh, uh, earliest runic inscription goes back to the first century uh, and uh, in the history of alphabets, it's generally considered that the first time you see it, it uh, the system probably goes back a hundred years or so before that as far as when it actually originated. So it originated in the first century B.C., probably somewhere in there, and uh, continued in a uh, a traditional manner uh, through uh, a, a complete millennium and continued then to be reformed and and uh, updated, if you will, by people within the runic tradition for uh, another 500 years. And then they were rediscovered, as it were, by uh, especially Scandinavians who started to investigate these uh, runic inscriptions. There are over thousand runic uh, rune stones and things of that nature in Sweden, Denmark, and uh, Norway, for example. So uh, they're very uh, numerous. And so at the time of humanism started, there was a natural interest in that sort of thing. And they started to investigate them in a modern scientific way. Uh, and uh, it took a long time for them to be uh, fully decoded in a modern scholarly sense to really understand the system. Uh, and uh, so that's the scholarly aspect of it. The uh, mythology connected to it, the indigenous mythology of the uh, runes, has it that uh, the god Ozin discovered the runes uh, during an sort of shamanic uh, ritual of self-sacrifice, where it is said that he gave himself to himself, he sacrificed himself to himself on the tree and uh, and took up the runes, and meaning that he absorbed them from beyond, as it were, and then began to utter them and to the to the world and to be other gods and so forth, and so it's uh, has a mythology of its own within the uh, the system of uh, the ancient Germanic peoples. That's the the basic idea behind uh, runes in ancient times. Uh, free Dreamlanders, we're going to take a little break for you right now. We'll be back in uh, 
just a few minutes, we're going to find out what the runes meant to the Nazis. We'll be right back. When Plato's ancestor Solon received the story of Atlantis from this Egyptian priest, the Egyptian priest said to him, Many and manifold are the destructions of mankind. You have know of but one. But you Greeks are like children. There are many, many destructions of mankind by all various types of means. That was an excerpt from a conversation with Rand Flemath on Dreamland. He and his wife, Rose, are the originators of the classic When the Sky Fell that talks about crustal shift based on the theories of Charles Hapgood. And so much has come from that, and it's becoming an important topic once again. We've had Rand on Dreamland any number of times, three times, I think, over the years, the latest in 2019, talking about Moses and the fact that Moses was murdered and what that means. I'm telling you all this to illustrate what you get when you subscribe. It's much more than sitting and passively listening to a show and then not doing anything. If you get into this, it will change your mind and change your life and be a very, very enriching and wondrous experience. Unknown Country is really unlike any other place in the world. A 20-plus year archive of Dreamland. The full run of Ann Strieber's marvelous, mysterious powers, William Henry's terrific revelations, Jeremy Vaney's The Experience, and currently Mia Faraleto's New Observations and Mike Clellan's The Unseen, plus active message boards and a lively subscriber area with weekly chats and often video meetings with our Dreamland guests, plus audiobooks of my books Communion, Transformation, Majestic, and The Secret School. There's so much there for $4.95 a month. It's really well worth it. So subscribe to Unknown Country and Dreamland today. Enjoy listening to Dreamland and the other active shows on your favorite app. You can listen to the subscriber version of Dreamland. We show you how to set it up on the site once you're a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Castro, and many other apps. So do it today. Finally, you've been listening for years probably and never paid. Pay now. It's really well worth it. Get into this. Now's the time. Go to unknowncountry.com and sign up. To How curious are you? How much do you really want to know about the world you live in? There are, for example, very real conspiracies. We're talking about one of them today. And this is a place where if it's real, We're going to talk about it, but not if it's not real. So there's no confusion here. If we're talking conspiracy on Dreamland and on UnknownCountry.com, it's because we can prove it, just like we can prove that the Roswell incident has been covered up. We can prove these things. We can prove that the abduction phenomena is in some way very real. We can prove that there are unusual materials in this world because some of them are right here in my possession. So, this is an unusual place. It's a unique place. And above all, it is a great place to explore. 
ExploringTheUnknownCountry.com archive is a really extraordinary experience. It's a place where you can regain what we are losing, which is a lost sense of wonder and a willingness to explore the unknown. We live in a terribly difficult world right now. This place is an oasis of wonder. Join unknowncountry.com to 1968, Glynis Mackay is a desperate woman. She's been told she's dying of cancer. She can no longer speak. She receives a psychic communication from aliens that she has been in touch with for years. Listen to her talk about what happened. Um, I went into this huge room and there were many other people sitting and some lying on couches that had come there for healing. And then he said to me, you understand who sent you here to me? And I'm thinking, what does he mean? And then he said, you've been having communication for many, many years from what who you call UFOs. And I thought, my God, how does he know this? And I'm trying to sort of push back on the chair, looking a bit shocked probably. And he said to me, when you leave here at 10 past 12 today, there are two craft over the house and you will see them. And she and her mother-in-law both saw them, and indeed, within eight days, Glynis Mackay was cured in 1968 of what was believed to be terminal cancer and is telling her amazing story to our subscribers. And this is only a small part of it. It ranges from the discovery of actual material from a chemtrail that has been analyzed in Australia and found to be quite a dangerous pathogen to the most amazing series, quite frankly, of close encounters I have ever heard about, most of them multiple witnessed and with being strangely similar to those reported by Charles Hall, which he calls the Tall Whites, uh, which Glynis, of course, has never heard of. An amazing interview. Become a subscriber to UnknownCountry.com. You'll get so much more. These interviews, incredible stories like this, things you just literally won't hear elsewhere. The best subscriber section of its kind in the world. This interview with Glynis Mackay was put on the website in 2006, and it's still there. It is just one of thousands of different things that you can find on unknowncountry.com. It is almost certainly the largest site of its kind in the world, and subscriptions are really very reasonably priced. $5 a month, $13 for three months, up to $350 for a lifetime subscription. You will not find anything like it anywhere else in the world. Go to unknowncountry.com now and click on the subscribe tab. We're talking to Stephen Flowers, his book, The Occult in National Socialism, his website, seedthemystery.com. As I got that title, is it Seed the Mystery? Or seek the Mysteries. So it's seek plural. Seek the Mysteries. Okay, seekthemysteries.com. I'm sorry. Yes. All right. Uh, just a moment ago, we were. I was going to ask you the ruin. The ruins became part of the Nazi, n- not officially, as you say in the book, but part of the sort of symbolic underpinnings, if you will, of Nazism. And uh, were they 
were they believed in the sense that there are people who believe that runes are a fortune-telling device, et cetera, and so forth, that they have occult, not just occult symbolic significance, but power. Uh, is that how they were used or not? Well, uh, there was a, which I, I go into in some detail in the book, a uh, uh, bureau, a, a, a governmental uh, apparatus that was called the Aminerbe, which means Ancestral Heritage uh, Office. And uh, that was a uh, scientific a sort of investigative uh, branch, oftentimes in the sort of occult Nazi books that are so common. It's called the Occult Bureau or something like that, when it was really a uh, investigative uh, bureaucracy uh, where they organized professors and all sorts of things like that. And so on the one hand, they were looking for as much as they could find out on the actual scientific scholarly aspects of these things. But it was a, a brainchild or a baby a, a pro- project of Heinrich Himmler, who uh, was interested primarily in uh, using this material. Uh, he was interested, okay, if it, uh, he, he would, we have all of his correspondence, for example, and he will ask a scientific runologist, what does this rune mean? And he'll get the answer back, well, we don't know, it could be this or it could be that. And then he will respond to that, saying, oh, that's very interesting, but we are going to make it mean this. So he was interested, but it was primarily when push came to shove, it was something that was going to be used for propagandistic uh, reasons. And uh, this is the key to the whole uh, thing, as far as I have been able to determine, that uh, a lot of people have pet theories about occult ideas and so forth and so on. But the first and foremost uh, occult uh, aspect of the use of symbols, runes, a swastika, and all that sort of thing for the Nazis is something that we uh, only later really came to understand as concepts of branding, branding something, making it something that communicates to the mind of your uh, audience, your customer, your whatever you want to call them, the people you're trying to influence to to come to understand how to manipulate these symbols in order to manipulate the minds of the masses. This was Hitler's primary interest. And... uh, so things like the runes are branding mechanisms to give uh, the party a look, a sort of snazzy look that exuded this idea of competence, power, uh, and uh, and this sort of thing. Uh, in the competition of the day, between and among all of the different political parties, most of them uh Marxist left-wing kind of parties, they they uh, uh, were just uh, had not mastered uh, this 
idea of branding the way that uh, Hitler did, as far as uh, everybody should have a uniform. We should look uh, ready to take charge and ready to bring order to chaos. And uh, these symbols are all exuding that idea, and they speak to the unconscious mind of the masses, and the runes are a Germanic branding mechanism. This is our writing. This is our way uh, of of, uh, of making letters and so forth. But it wasn't uh, anything uh, that was too esoteric in the sense that a lot of magicians of today and so forth might say, but rather it gives this atmosphere and uh, uh, kind of style. That's one thing. Why the Nazis have fascinated subsequent generations so thoroughly is that because that they, magic that, that they, they exuded were... still works. If you watch Triumph of the Will or you see this uh, these things that they were doing, you can say that is compelling to the to the mind as you see it now. And uh, the symbols, uh, Hitler designed the swastika. It was an old symbol, obviously used forever. But he, the way he did it, the way he tilted it, the whole thing, he was, of course, uh, before he became dictator of Germany, he put on his tax forms artist. He was considered himself an artist first. <laughs> and uh, so until uh, he kind of got into politics. But uh so, but he was a, a designer of images and things of that nature, and so this swastika logo uh, was was a, a compelling branding mechanism. We're going to take another little break for our free dreamlanders. Uh, free dreamlanders, enjoy these commercials and do what they say. If you do what they say, inevitably <laughs> one of them is going to suggest you subscribe to the site, and you won't be listening to this anymore. We'll. When Plato's ancestor Solon received the story of Atlantis from this Egyptian priest, the Egyptian priest said to him, Many and manifold are the destructions of mankind. You have know of but one. But you Greeks are like children. There are many, many destructions of mankind by all various types of means. That was an excerpt from a conversation with Rand Flemath on Dreamland. He and his wife, Rose, are the originators of the classic When the Sky Fell that talks about crustal shift based on the theories of Charles Hapgood. And so much has come from that, and it's becoming an important topic once again. We've had Rand on Dreamland any number of times, three times, I think, over the years, the latest in 2019, talking about Moses and the fact that Moses was murdered and what that means. I'm telling you all this to illustrate what you get when you subscribe. It's much more than sitting and passively listening to a show and then not doing anything. If you get into this, it will change your mind and change your life and be a very, very enriching and wondrous experience. Unknown Country is really unlike any other place in the world. A 20-plus year archive of Dreamland, the full run of Ann Strieber's marvelous, mysterious powers, William Henry's terrific revelations, Jeremy Vaney's The Experience, and currently Mia Faraleto's New Observations, 
and Mike Clellan's The Unseen, plus active message boards and a lively subscriber area with weekly chats and often video meetings with our Dreamland guests, plus audiobooks of my books Communion, Transformation, Majestic, and The Secret School. There's so much there for $4.95 a month. It's really well worth it. So subscribe to Unknown Country and Dreamland today. Enjoy listening to Dreamland and the other active shows on your favorite app. You can listen to the subscriber version of Dreamland. We show you how to set it up on the site once you're a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Castro, and many other apps. So do it today. Finally, you've been listening for years probably and never paid. Pay now. It's really well worth it. Get into this. Now's the time. Go to unknowncountry.com and sign up today. We're talking to Stephen Flowers, uh, the occult in national socialism. We're also going to be talking a little bit more later about the occult roots of Bolshevism. And we're going to, which is his, a, a new book he's working on, and we, we might well have another dreamland about that at a later time in more detail. Uh, his website is seedthemysteries.seekthemysteries.com. That's seekthemysteries.com. And I would like to ask you this. You know, the swastika is a remarkable symbol, and there's been a lot written about its, its power. Uh, in the church where Hitler worshipped as a child, there are swastikas carved into the uh, into the woodwork of the choir, but they're not the thing that the things that made it so powerful were, as you say, the twisting of it to one side, the and the colors, the black, the white, and the red. Mm-hmm are devastating to the human mind. They're really powerful. I remember when I was a boy growing up in San Antonio, and we used to play war. We had little tanks and things, you know, the usual things boys have, little soldiers. No one was interested in having the Sherman tank. You wanted the the tiger, and you wanted Mm -hmm. the Germans and the swastikas and all of that stuff. We didn't know anything about Nazism one way or another, but uh, it's the power of these symbols. And I want to ask you if you have any insight into why it was, besides just being an artist, because he was, after all, quite an indifferent artist, Hitler. Mm -hmm. What gave him, how did he come up with all of this shockingly powerful and, frankly, corrosive symbolism? Well, part of it was that uh, enthusiasm for archaic ancient symbols, and then these symbols were around and part of the popular culture. That's the thing we don't realize. He didn't just say, okay, we're going to voice these symbols out on people. No, they were already trending, as we say today, right? They were already uh, something that people were trending towards, and so he just uh, put them on steroids. And a lot of it is does design, uh, as we know. Well, uh, just like the SS, he didn't design they just the SS runes where they have the S and the S. 
uh, rules put together uh, for the, the the SS organization. But you see the art. It's kind of an Art Deco kind of look to the actual figures. There's style there. They're masters of style. They had a book. Uh, it was a huge, thick book that uh, dictated all of the uniforms, all of the symbols that they wore and so forth. It was like a, uh, a uniform uh, directory of how we have to look, right? And so that was, and it had a purpose. It had a message. Uh, beyond just say it looks good, but it has a, a, a an underlying message, and the swastika had that, and just the the tilting of it had the redness. So he, I, I, in the research of this book, one of the things I did is I read through Mein Kampf with an eye towards where is this man telling us anything of a magical occult kind of thing, and he does it repeatedly. He, uh, but his purpose in writing the book, nobody read that book, uh, really. Uh, but uh, it was, of course, a bestseller. Everybody had to have one. Yes, but, I read but, it. I have he, to say Yeah, but as you see, what he did is he was writing for a small group of political figures, people that were he with him, with whom he might have considered himself to be in intellectual uh, competition. So what he wanted to get across to them is, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I know exactly how to do everything. I am the boss. I am the Fuhrer. And you will uh, understand that I am the man with the ideas that will give us power. And so he just spilled the beans repeatedly as to how he was working. For example, he will say, we have our meetings at night because in the night, the minds of the masses are more susceptible to suggestion. He comes out and says this. He says, for example, that our banner is red because I noticed in the Bolsheviks' meetings and so forth, these red banners are compelling. They are engender enthusiasm and an incredible sense of power, this red banner. So our banner must also be primarily red for that reason. Of course, the three colors are just the Germanic patriotic colors going back to ancient times you know that's so the the three colors are the germanic uh, political colors going back forever but uh so in mein Kampf, he repeatedly gives this kind of information sometimes just in passing and so forth but he wants the reader uh, his competitors or would-be competitors to know, I know what I'm doing and I have a special knowledge, you know, and a special way to apply this knowledge to get us what we want. And so uh, that's, that's what is said. The book is full of it. Yeah. Well, you know, you have such a fascinating, uh, you've written a lot of books and uh, I, I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit among your 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 body of work uh, because it, it's that's it, absolutely fascinating. I'm going to get more deeply into your work because, folks, this book, "The Occult in National Socialism," 
is the first book on this subject that I've read that actually is truthful uh, and not designed to to uh, titillate people and excite them with fantasies. In And to give you an idea of what I mean, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the uh, Sphere of Destiny and the Ravenscroft book and the realities behind that. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of reading the Sphere of Destinies and what you discovered when you researched it? Right. Well, that was really... Uh the uh, one of the beginnings I, a friend of mine who was my first sort of a occult magical sort of living mentor guy I knew that was actually into this sort of thing a little older guy than me and uh he said I, I saw a book you know at the B Dalton or wherever it was that you might be interested in so I we drove over there and I, I got it I I'd written uh, I'd, I mean I'd, I'd read uh uh some of uh, the uh morning of the magicians which contains this kind of material and then this and so i uh read this spear of destiny and uh it's it set me on a path of investigation but what i discovered as i investigated reality at the university in the german department uh he couldn't quite hoodwink me as much as he could others i would say well i want to this guido von list Man, he paints him as some kind of, you know, Aleister Crowley, forget it. This guy was a mad, uh, pervert, strange guy. And it's like I researched him, and no, none of that was true. He was an establishment figure, the darling of the conservative kind of Viennese society, uh, and was not a uh, an outcast or an outsider at all. And uh, so I started to investigate Guido von List and have uh, translated his major book way back in the eight, uh, 80s and uh, discovered many things about him uh, and uh, brought him to the English-speaking world. But uh, The Spear of Destiny, uh, when you read it, it's it. actually, as I report in the book, it was uh, the matter of a lawsuit later on. And uh, in, in open court, uh, the author... Uh, admitted or, or stated that the work is fiction. It's it was a work of fiction. So the, it d- didn't even exist. The sphere, the, the of, destiny. sphere of destiny exists. Yes, it does. Or, or it does. There is a spear. There is a spear. Uh, it's in the. Uh, you can see it in the uh, Hofburg in the Viennese uh, uh, crown jewels. It's right there, and. Uh, it is a uh, as described in the book, and I, in my uh, in the book, uh, this uh, one we're talking about, I, I get into somewhat about that sphere. You know, this uh, Odin that we mentioned earlier, uh, our uh, god, uh, after Wednesday, you know, his name. We still use the Germanic names of the gods in our uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all named after Germanic gods. Uh, You know, but uh, Odin, this Wodan, carried a spear. That was his symbolic weapon. And uh, so that was the symbol or sort of a royal scepter of the uh, god. And Germanic kings in ancient times and medieval times also carried a spear 
in this way. Now, in the Middle Ages, as you're probably well aware, uh, when Christianity comes uh, onto the scene, uh, old symbols, uh, kind of like they does in Santeria and Voodoo and all that, uh, the, your old symbols are then reinterpreted in a Christian sense so that something will say, okay, we have this very important, the king is carrying a spear, it's a very important spear. Where does in our uh, Christian uh, scripture, etc., does a spear play a large role? Hmm, well, of course, it's the spear of Longinus, right, that pierced the side of Christ. And so... That's where the sort of Christian uh, mythology, and that's the whole Ravenscroft uh, uh, line of thinking, is that this the man who holds this spear holds the destiny of the world in his hands, right. because that Longinus, when he pierced the side of Christ, fulfilling prophecy it, and so forth. That can't be true, I mean, because that type of magic doesn't actually exist. Right. Well, that's the angle, though. That's why it's the spear of destiny. It was just called in German, in the Austria, it's called just the holy lance, and it was considered to be that have that symbolic quality. Of but course, we know the other, the other side of the coin is that if people believe it has a power, they yes. confer that power on it, and for, as far as they're concerned, it does mm -hmm. have that power. Right. But, it, you know, the main power it has is it's a scepter of royal authority. It was uh, actually uh, a spear from around seven, eight hundred. It was made at that time. And uh, it was carried by various kings. And Charlemagne eventually obtains it. And then, uh, and that, of course, when it becomes very important in history at that point, as his scepter or his... He carried it, just the head of it, you know, uh, with him all the time. But uh, so that that's the spear of destiny. But the story that Ravenscroft tells is just completely, he went so far as to uh, make up names, addresses of places. He'll say so-and-so went to this guy's bookshop at this address in Vienna. These things didn't exist. I mean, the address wow. doesn't exist. And so, but see, he was trying to... to to make people believe all this is real and all this is exactly as I guess in order to make money would be his reason? Yes, yes. Well, yeah. He, he made a lay, lot of money, uh, I'm sure. Yeah. And uh, he was supposedly, uh, and then he uh, said, I learned all of this from this uh, anthropist office. Uh, uh, and uh, he told me all this great stuff, and then it was uh, revealed, or it turns out that he never met this guy or did, and didn't know him at all. <laughs> so, you know, My it's word. all it's all just... Uh, and then uh, Nicholas Goodrick Clark, uh, he researched it very well in his uh, The Occult Roots of Nazism, which is a good book. Unfortunately, or not unfortunately, it's a good book. I mean, but it, uh, that book... Uh, concentrates too much on the idea of the uh, sort of neo-Germanic uh, thinkers such as Guido von Liszt and so forth as being the main uh, uh, engine of occult thinking among the Nazis. And as my, I try to show in my book, it's much more complex than that. Yes. Uh, and Hitler did not like the that aspect. Uh, Himmler loved it, but if Himmler hadn't been the way he was, there would be half the interest in this sort of occult 
kind of stuff among the right. Nazis. He was the real enthusiast for that. Hitler said, and then Mein Kampf said, these people talk about the old uh, gods, and that ruins it all for me. It's just ridiculous. You know, because he wanted to, to be modern, you know. Yeah, he, and, uh, uh, he once at one point complained about Himmler saying, we have no past. <laughs> and it, 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 he scorned that. I, I wrote mm -hmm. a, a novel called In Hitler's House in which I exhaustively researched a lot of this uh -huh. material. And I, I came to the same conclusion that you're coming to that Hitler, this was not something that was Hitler's interest, but he did know how to use these symbols to great effect. Yeah. Free Dreamlanders, you have come to the end of your time with us today, I'm sorry to say. We've been talking about the occult and national socialism. Uh, when we come back, we're going to explore alternative science that was so popular among the Nazis and uh, alternative creation theories, uh, Antarctica and uh, Nazi Flying saucers and Schwaben, a new Schwabenland, supposedly in Antarctica. We're going to find out about all of those things and Admiral Byrd's mysterious beliefs about Antarctica. It'll be fascinating. Free Dreamlanders, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Stephen's website is seekthemysteries.com and do go to it and you'll find there a remarkable list of books. Subscribers, we're going to keep right on keeping on. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.